Okay, we're going to move now into our time of study. We are in um, the second chapter of Second Peter. There's a, a twofold warning uh, that Peter begins with, and we're going to look in detail at these things this morning. We're not going to get through a, a huge amount of this chapter, um, but we'll uh, we'll just see how far we do get. Let's just start by uh, just kind of summarising or looking at what we're going to be going into. The first is that there's a deception coming. And that's the first thing that Peter's really going to make very clear as we start to look at these verses. And the staggering thing to try and comprehend is that Peter is telling us that this deception, certainly in part, is going to come from within the church, within that which we refer to as the church. Now, let me just make a distinction here. There's a difference between what we speak of as the church and that which the Bible speaks of as the body of Christ. There are many that are within the church. But only those that are truly born again are part of the body of Christ. And we see this in the parable that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 13, that in the field, there is not only the wheat, but there are tares that are sown amongst the wheat, who the Lord clearly says should be left until the time of the harvest. It's not our job to go and pluck them out and pull them out and get rid of them, because in doing so, we might actually damage the wheat. But we need to understand that within the church, there is the good, there is the bad. The parable of the dragnet, the last of those parables in Matthew 13, also gives us this picture that there's this net that gathers from out of the world this mixed bag, good and bad. And that's what we find within the church. I uh, just as a, a little um, OCD thing on my part, when I uh, am writing or doing notes, when I'm speaking of the body of Christ and I use the term church, I use a capital C. When I'm writing and I use the church term church in regard to the overall church, as in the mixed bag, then I use a small lowercase c. Uh, I just do that for my own uh, little kind of mental state, just to clarify the difference. But I just, just share that with you so that we realize that when we talk of the church, we need to understand that there is the good and there is the bad, both within that which certainly the world perceives as being the church. But there is, of course, within the church, the true body of Christ, the true church, really. So deception is coming. But the other thing that Peter's going to mention and, and bring to our attention is that combined with that, we're going to see a rejection of authority, uh, particularly as we grow closer to the Lord's return. We're going to see that rejection of authority in the family, in the nation in which we live and around the world. And ultimately, it's a rejection of God's authority. Now, you don't need me to tell you that we're seeing all of that going on right now. We are right in the middle of this situation that Peter is describing for us. So let's go through uh, the first nine verses, which is what I'm hoping we're going to get through this morning. And um, we'll just look at this. We'll get the kind of context of what we're uh, studying. So we read, first of all, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies even denying the Lord that brought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness they shall with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, 
but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making an ensample unto those that afterward should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Now, I don't want to get into verse 10. I want to stop at that point, but I do want to read verse 10 because it kind of gives us the context of what we're going to go back and look at. Because in verse 10, Peter just says, But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed, and are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Now, we're going to pick up from there, Lord willing, next week. Um, but you just get the context. So what Peter's saying here is that we have a problem. We have this complete disregard for authority people that are willing to to speak against authority that just openly defy any authority and we see so much of this in the world today and a lot of it of course is fueled by the media uh, the media seem to think they are accountable to nobody uh, they can say what they want and do what they want uh, and they are um antagonistic i suppose would be a fair word to use regarding uh, any governmental authority or any authority in any uh, way shape or form the media themselves see themselves as the only authority that matters let's go back then and just take this apart look at it verse by verse uh, and see what uh, the lord would teach us this morning from these things well the first thing to to note is what peter says he starts the chapter and says, and obviously there were no chapter breaks in the original. He's just speaking again, the evidence, the, the basis, the solid foundation that we have for our faith, the reason that we should stand and not be shaken, that we have this prophecy that's shining uh, as this day star uh, and so on, uh, this bright light that's, uh, that's uh, shining for us to, to run toward, as it were. Uh, and he ends the previous chapter, says that the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Then he says, but there were false prophets also among the people. And he's going to make the point that just as it was in Israel, then it's going to be exactly the same now in the, the church going forward. So just as it was then, it will be. Uh, it's very much a reiteration of what um Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, the thing that has been is that which shall be. Uh, and God will require an account of that which is past. Now, let's just look at this then. The, the false prophets were among the people. Now, I want to just look at some of the uh, examples we have in the Old Testament. There are many. I'm just going to pull a few out for us to look at. Uh, Moses gives a really interesting warning in Deuteronomy. We'll look at that. There's a real uh, lesson in the subtlety of deception uh, and why we need to be so careful in these days. And then Jeremiah himself prophesied during a time of incredible deception and um, false prophets um, prevailing. So let's just jump back and just go through some of these scriptures. Now, we're going to move at quite a pace this morning because there's a lot of material, but hopefully you'll, you'll keep up and you'll see uh, the, the theme develop as we go through. So jumping into Deuteronomy 13, we read this chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 13. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass whereof he spoke unto you, uh, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, let us serve them. 
thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet. Let me just, just go back and read that again. Okay, so they're saying if a prophet stands up in your midst or dream of dreams and they say something, they, they give you a sign or a wonder. Now, this is saying that they are actually going to do something that's impressive, that is enough to say, well, that seems like it could be the truth. Bear in mind, again, the context, Peter's already reminded us in the previous chapter that a physical experience itself is not something to to hang our code on. You know, he said his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration was wonderful. It was great proof. He was an eyewitness. But we have a more sure word of prophecy. And so now he's saying these things. Notice what he says, verse 2, though. And the sign or the wonder come to pass. He's not saying that these are prophets that make these kind of predictions. It's not like the Nostradamus type thing where all sorts of things may be claimed or said are going to happen in the future. And, you know, truthfully, you can't really uh, relate them to any specific event, you know, in the future or whatever. It is very, very vague. Now, this is saying something specific is said and it actually happens. Now, that's enough to, to make a lot of people go, well, this must be true, surely. Well, this is what the Lord says. You know, and, and if people say, let us go after other gods, which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Verse 3 makes it clear. Thou shall not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God proves you, tests you. It's a test to see what you're going to do in this situation, to know whether you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. We were singing this morning and we talked about that greatest commandment that God, uh, that Jesus gave, that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul and mind and strength. Well, this is telling us that God was speaking to Israel, of course, but you know, God is without partiality, the same yesterday, today, forever. These things apply to us in that sense as well. You know, certainly the principles that God will allow us to be tested. God will allow things to go on that seem quite credible at times or plausible. Um, and we may see miracles. We may see events take place that we can't explain in the natural. Well, God is saying, are you going to follow up those things or are you going to stay true to my word? It goes on, verse four, it says, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him. That's it. We don't fear anything else. We don't walk after anything else and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and cleave unto him. So just look at the, the statements there. You should walk after the Lord your God. That's the first statement of God. And fear him, second. And keep his commandments, third. Obey his voice, fourth. And you shall serve him, the fifth. And shall cleave unto him, sixth. Six is kind of the number of man in scripture. And in a sense, we've got six reminders there. We need it as, as individuals, as humans, that we should serve and follow after God alone. It goes on and says, And that prophet of that dream of dreams shall be put to death, because he has spoken to turn you away from the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of bondage, to thrust thee out of the way which the Lord thy God commanded thee to walk in. So shall thou put the evil away from the midst of you. Notice what God is saying. There is no other God that can deliver. There is no other God that can bring salvation. And although somebody may come onto the scene and make some sort of prediction, they may uh, declare a dream they've had, they may give some sort of prophecy. It does, unless it's in accord with scripture, unless it's rooted in God's word, we reject it for the simple reason that there is no other God that can save. And God sets himself up here and says, I am the only God that can save. We see it many times in the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah. 
It goes on, this uh, portion, and says, If thy brother, and we read this a couple of weeks ago, the son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is as thy own soul. So these are the people that are closest to us. Even if they entice thee secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers, namely of the gods of the people which are round about you, nigh unto thee, or far off from thee, from one end of earth, even to the other end of the earth. Thou shalt not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him, neither shall thine eye pity him, neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal him. But thou shalt surely kill him. Thy hand shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You see, God is very, very serious about the charge of kidnapping, effectively. And God looks at it that way when somebody deceives you or takes you away from him, because God classes us as his children. And if we are drawn away or taken away by somebody else, that in God's book is the charge of kidnapping for which there was the penalty of death. Thou shalt stone him with stones that he died, because he sought to thrust thee away from the Lord thy God. And notice, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You know, Israel effectively were purchased by God. We're told in the New Testament that we have also been purchased by the blood of Christ. We now belong to God. And all Israel shall hear and fear and do no more any such wickedness as this is among you. That's one example. Let's look at another example from the book of Kings, chapter 13. Uh, you'll be familiar, of course, we have the monarchy established. Of course, Saul becomes the first king. The children have been looking at this recently. And then, of course, David, then the next king, and then Solomon following on these three consecutive 40-year reigns of these kings. And then we get to the time of uh, when Solomon's kingdom passes to his son, Rehoboam. The kingdom divides into the northern kingdom of Israel under a man by the name of Jeroboam. And then the southern kingdom of uh, Judah uh, under the, the rule of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. So this is division in the kingdom. Now, of course, the uh, idolatrous bunch down south moved up north. Those that wanted to serve the Lord and worship at the temple in Jerusalem moved down south. So there's this intermingling of the tribes at this point. But geographically, geographically only, the northern kingdom is effectively the ten tribes. The southern kingdom is the two tribes. That's how that division worked. Now, we get to the situation in 1 Kings 13 that Jeroboam was leading the people into idolatry. And we read, Behold, there came a man of God. Now, this is scripture telling us that this individual is a godly man. He's a man of God. Came out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. Uh, Bethel means the house of God. Uh, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Interesting, isn't it? That he's trying to carry on with some sort of religious practice. Uh, by the way, that man of God is, is referenced 15 times. This individual is called that. So no question, this isn't just a, uh, a, a convenient term. It's a statement that this was a godly man. Now, again, Jeroboam is going through the motions. Uh, but God was no longer the center of the worship. Uh, and, you know, so the, the worship itself was just this ritual they were going through. It was a religious practice. There's a lot of churches today that go through all sorts of religious practices, but God is no longer the center of their worship. Of course, so many believers still observe those type of things, but it's just empty. But anyway, we read that he cried out against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David 
Josiah by name, and upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. That idea of men's bones being burned, of course, if anybody were to touch a bone of a, a human once they died, they'd be defiled. So it's defiling this place. It's saying that this place has been set up to um, uh, indulge in these idolatrous practices is to be utterly defiled and rejected. And uh, of course, Josiah was a king that would come many, many years later. And this prophecy that God is giving here uh, of what would take place. The high places typically were used as these uh, locations for worship because they worship the sun, the moon, the stars and the planets and so on. So, of course, they would get their vantage point by going up to a high place, typically. So they're closer to those things. Now, this unnamed prophet prophesies over 300 years before the events actually come to pass but they do indeed come to pass in detail in fact uh in 2 kings 23 15 we read the fulfillment uh and we read there moreover the altar that was at bethel and the high place which jeroboam the son of nebat who made israel to sin that becomes his title by the way not a good title to have uh, had made both that altar and the high place he broke down this is josiah broke it down and burned the high place and stamped it's, it's small to powder and burned the grove and as josiah turned himself he spied the sepulchres that were there in the mount and sent and took the bones out of the sepulchres and burned them upon the altar and polluted it according to the word of the lord which the man of god proclaimed to proclaim these words so this is the fulfillment of the prophecy that we're looking at let's just jump back though into this this narrative in this account in first Kings. so this individual comes and he makes this declaration and he gave a sign the same day now this is uh, and a kind of a prophecy that's immediately fulfilled saying this is the sign which the lord has spoken behold the altar shall be rent and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out Again, this was actually fulfilled within moments of him speaking. It came to pass that when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which he had cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar saying, lay hold on him. So Jeroboam's furious that this individual has the audacity to come up and say what he's doing is wrong. But we're told that his hand, which he put forth against him, dried up. So that he could not pull it in, just locked in place. He just physically could not move his hand and couldn't pull it into him again. It recognized that uh, this man of God had been speaking the right thing. It's interesting how people are so reluctant to be corrected, isn't it? Uh, and again, we see that pride is always the root of sin. Uh, interestingly, in Psalm 105, verse 15, it states there, Touch not my anointed and do my prophets no harm. Well, Jeroboam here, uh, about to try and do harm to this prophet, uh, God won't allow that to happen. And we read the altar also was rent and the ashes poured out from the altar. So as Jeroboam goes to strike or take hold of this, this prophet, the altar is not only his arm lock, but the altar just splits in half. The ashes fall, fall on the ground, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said unto the man of God, entreat now the face of the Lord thy God and pray for me that my hand may be restored me again. So he, he's concerned about his own physical situation now. And the man of God besought the Lord and the king's hand was restored him again and it became as it was before. It's funny, isn't it, how people cry out to God when they're in trouble, uh, particularly when it affects them physically. And the king said unto the man of God, come home with me and refresh thyself. Let's be friends now uh, and I will give thee a reward, he says. And the man of God said unto the king, if thou wilt give me half thine house, 
I will not go in with thee, neither will I eat bread, nor drink water in this place. For so it was charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way uh, that you thou camest. So God has clearly said to his prophet, Don't stay there, don't you know, go home with anybody and have a meal or anything else, don't eat bread, don't drink water, and don't turn again by the same way. So go back a different route. Um, just, just get out of there. So he went another way and returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. So being obedient, going back, doesn't accept Jeroboam's very kind offer of hospitality. And uh, you'd think this is a nice conclusion to the matter, wouldn't you, at this point? But as we read on, we read this. Now there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel, the words which he had spoken unto the king. Then they told also to their father, and their father said unto them, what way went he? For his sons had seen what way the man of God went, which came from Judah. Uh, let me just make a, a mention there. This uh, old prophet is not referred to as a man of God. Simply says he's an old prophet and he's in Bethel. Somebody who happens to be in the house of God. But this seems to be an example of what we would today refer to as effectively a false prophet. Um, and this is why this is so interesting because he's kind of he, he's listed as a prophet people perceived him to be a prophet he's in Bethel the house of God and yet truly not following God as you'll see <clears throat> and he said unto his son saddle me the ass so they saddled him the ass and he rode thereon and went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak tree and said unto him art thou the man of God that came from Judah and he said I am then he said unto him come home with me and eat bread and he said, I may not return with thee, nor go in with thee, neither will I eat bread, nor drink water with thee in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, thou shalt eat no bread, nor drink water there, nor turn again uh, to go by the way that thou camest. So just repeating what he's already said to Jeroboam, no, I've got to go straight back. That's what God's told me. And he said unto him, so this is now the second man who's claimed to be a prophet. I am a prophet also as thou art. Yeah. Isn't it interesting how false prophets and, uh, you know, the, the false converts in the church will try and tell us that they are just as we are. We're all on the same team. We're all on the same side. And he says this, and an angel spoke unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with thee uh, into thine house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied unto him. That's the Holy Spirit's narrative at the end there, that he lied unto him. So this prophet is making this statement that, well, an angel came and told me that it's okay, you can come back with me. Now, foolishly, that's exactly what this man does. Remember what it says in Galatians, though. Uh, Paul, of course, speaking in the New Testament, uh, you know, about the gospel particularly. But he says, though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. You know, even if you get a visit from an angel and an angel claims or says something to do something or to follow something that is not in accord with the word that God has given, reject it. Don't entertain it because angels also, and we'll see Peter uh, expound on this in a moment, angels also can deceive. Now, God has a third, sorry, two thirds of the angels that worship him, that serve him, that have not compromised but a third of the angels, we understand from Revelation, fell. When Satan fell, they rebelled against God. They rejected that authority that was in place. And we'll come on to that in a moment. Now, it says here that he lied. So the, whether he really did see an angel or an angel spoke to him is probably questionable. It's more likely that he just made the whole thing up anyway. But even if an angel had spoken to him, then he should have at least been discerning enough to check with God rather than just stepping out and asking this man back. But anyway... 
Verse 19. So he went back. So this is the good man, the, the man of God goes back and he did eat bread and his house uh, and drank water. And it came to pass as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came unto the prophet that brought him back. Now, it's questionable whether this prophet has ever, ever, ever spoken anything in the name of the Lord up until this point. But certainly now something happens. He feels that he's compelled to say something, including the Lord speaks through him. And he cried unto the man of God that came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, for as much as thou hast disobeyed the mouth of the Lord and hast not kept the commandment which the Lord thy God commanded thee, but camest back and has eaten bread and drank water in the place of which the Lord did say to thee, Eat no bread and drink no water, thy carcass shall not come unto the sepulchre of thy fathers. In other words, you're not going to make it home, buddy. And it came to pass after he had eaten bread and after he had drank that he saddled for him the ass to wit for the prophet whom he had brought back. So he gets his his donkey ready, gets everything ready, gets, sends him on his way. And when he had gone, a lion met him by the way and slew him and his carcass was cast in the way and the ash uh, the ass stood by it and the lion also stood by the carcass. And behold, men passed by and saw the carcass cast in the way and the lion standing by the carcass. It must have been a sight, mustn't it? You walk in there and you've got a donkey and you've got a lion. They're standing side by side and they're looking at this body of this man that this lion's killed. And they came and they told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. And when the prophet that brought him back from the way heard thereof, he said, It is the man of God who was disobedient unto the word of the Lord. And maybe a bit of guilt kind of steps in here because, and therefore the Lord has delivered him unto the lion, which has torn him and slain him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke unto him. And he spoke to his sons, saying, Saddle me the ass, and they saddled him. And he went out and found his carcass cast away, and the ass and the lion standing by the carcass. And the lion had not eaten the carcass, nor torn the ass. I mean, this is an incredible picture is painted here. And the prophet took up the carcass of the man of God. No doubt one eye on the lion as well as he's doing this, uh, making sure the, the, the lion's not still as hungry. Uh, and laid it upon the ass and brought it back. And the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid his carcass in his own grave, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And it came to pass after he had buried him that he spoke to his son, saying, When I am dead, then bury me in the sepulchre where the, wherein the man of God is buried, and lay my bones beside his bones. May well have been the very bones that later Josiah took out of the graves and then put upon this uh, altar that he desecrated some 300 years in the future from this point. Okay. That's the, the history we just read. For the saying which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar of Bethel and against all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. The the prophet, arguably the false prophet here, acknowledges that what had been said by the man of God was true. It would come to pass. Why did he invite him back? Maybe it was jealousy. Maybe he wanted some of that power that this man seemed to have, this man of God. But for whatever reason, this is the account. Okay, sadly, no doubt given Jeroboam the license to carry on in rebellion. You see, this man's testimony, all that God had accomplished through him, was undone because he had been disobedient after being faithful in the first part of his ministry and doing everything that God had said, because later he didn't do what God had said and he didn't go straight home as he was told. As a result of this, Jeroboam looks at it and thinks, huh, well, that prophet got killed by a lion. Why should I trust his God? That's effectively what we read, because the next verse says, after this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil. Notice this, after this thing. Jeroboam clearly hears about the event. And it says, he returned not from his evil, but made a gain, uh, but, sorry, but, but made a gain of the lowest of the people, priests of the high places. He, he points anybody to be a priest. It's like, you know, priests are us. You know, anybody who wants to be a priest gets a go at this. Not those that specifically were called of God. 
or the tribe of Levi, as in the Old Testament it should have been. Uh, Whosoever would, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests. He became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing became a sin unto the house of Jeroboam, even to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. Okay, so some lessons from this. Just because someone claims to be the Lord's, just because they say, oh, we're all on the same side, you know, I'm a brother too, you know, or a sister in the Lord, you know, just be cautious. Just because they speak in the name of the Lord doesn't mean they are speaking on behalf of the Lord. We need to be careful. We are not deceived. It's a great lesson in discernment. You know, only ever follow that which God tells you. I just want to look, before we move on, at just a few examples from the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah we read, For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north, saith the Lord, and they shall come, and they shall set every one his throne at the entering of the gates of Jerusalem, and against the walls thereof round about, and against all the cities of Judah. God's saying, judgment is coming on Jerusalem. God is going to bring judgment because of all these things that we've seen through Israel and Judah's history. And I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness, who have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. Notice that they've worshipped the works of their own hands, just as Jeroboam had been doing so down south in Judah, they were doing the same thing. They were making gods to suit themselves. They were creating their own gods effectively to worship. Just jumping on, I'm not. I'm just reading select verses through the early part of the book of Jeremiah here, but you start to get the picture. God was going to bring judgment. But notice, verse 8, we're told, the priests said not. The priests, these are the ones who should have been leading the people. But they said not, where is the Lord? And they that handled the law knew me not. So people that were standing up week after week and they were in the um, the temple and synagogue and wherever else they were, you know, typically through Israel's history, we've seen the same thing. We sit in the church now. They that should have known the Lord, that should have been teaching the people, they that handle the law didn't know God. They didn't have a relationship with him. And notice also the pastors also transgressed against me and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. God making it very, very clear here. Um, just going on a few verses. But be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid, and be uh, you very desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Uh, I have at times past a, a, a teaching around this verse, looking at how we have hewed out broken systems that can't hold water. In the New Testament, the word of God is a number of times referred to as water. It's that living water that we're to take, that it, we're to be cleansed by the washing of the water of the word. And yet we live in a time where people have shooed out broken systems. They've come up with their own versions of the word of God. We've got so many twisted and distorted versions of the Bible. So many versions that completely omit verses. We've got versions that rewrite certain portions of the text, changing the meaning and the details. And sadly, so many Christians are completely oblivious to the dangers of these things. And they just see it says Bible on the cover. It must be a Bible. Therefore, we're okay. No, that's not the case at all. We have a real issue with the translations of many, many modern versions of the Bible. Some of them are so corrupt. It's, it's really quite frightening. And just as it was in Jeremiah's day, people hewed out of themselves these systems that couldn't hold water. This, this picture's being painted. The same thing is going on in the church today. 
In verse 26 of chapter 2 of Jeremiah, it says, As a thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets, the leaders themselves have become ashamed. Notice the, the, the terminology, though, like a thief. We see those ideas in the New Testament come out. Verse 27 says, saying to a stock, thou art my father, and to a stone, thou hast brought me forth. I mean, this is crazy. They are claiming that these idols that these erect, that they'd erected, these um, lumps of stone that they'd set up, or these trees they'd carved out, were actually their, their origin, that they'd come from these things, that they were the creator God, effectively. Um, and it says, They've turned their back unto me and not their face. But in their time of trouble, they will say, arise and save us. Now, we've invented a far more insulting God than those kind of idols that they have. You, you would think it's ridiculous to worship, you know, a tree that you've cut down and you've, you've molded and you know, carved into shape. Or if you set up some stones, we, we need today in our uh, modern scientific world, we think how stupid that kind of thing is. And yet we worship an even more insulting God and we worship nothing. And we say that nothing created us, that billions of years ago, nothing exploded. It became everything. And then all that we see around us, the complexity, the design, it's not attributed to God. It's attributed to random processes and time and chance, all starting from nothing. You know, we are worse than it was in Jeremiah's day. Notice also that in the time of their trouble, they're going to say, arise and save us. Jesus said something very, very similar to those words. Now notice also what was going on in Jeremiah's day. Declare you in Judah and publish in Jerusalem and say, blow the trumpet in the land. Cry. This is God saying this. Cry, gather together and say, assemble yourselves and let us go into the defense cities. God is saying, I want my people, when the the, the blowing of the trumpet occurs, to be gathered together to come into a safe place. And notice, set up the standard towards Zion. Retire, stay not. Don't make this place your home. Get out and come to this safe place. For I will bring evil from the north and a great destruction. Well, there you have, in this verse in Jeremiah, and many places in the Old Testament confirmed as well, the idea that God is going to come, is going to bring judgment, but there's going to be a blowing of a trumpet, and his people will be gathered into his barn, into that place of safety. We talk about the time of the rapture of the church, when we'll be taken out of this period of judgment that will come upon the world it was going on in jeremiah's day and people denied it they didn't want to listen to it notice this in psalm 27 verse 5 for in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion in the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me and he shall set me upon a rock again another description a picture of what will take place at the time of the rapture Notice we have many verses in the New Testament that uh, allude to this uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but has obtained salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not going to go through this time of tribulation that's coming upon the earth. Jesus himself said to the disciples, watch you therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And Jesus in John 14, that great verse where he told his disciples, don't fear, don't worry. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will come again to receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Back into Jeremiah, a few more verses. A lion has come up from his thicket and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. I mean, what a great picture, a forerunner of Antichrist here. Speaking of Nebuchadnezzar in this context, I believe, but um, looking at the bigger picture, this is obviously speaking prophetically of Antichrist as well. Um, from his place, to make the land desolate and thy cities shall be laid waste without inhabitant. For this, gird you with sackcloth. 
lament and howl for the fierce anger of the Lord is not turned back from us and it shall come to pass at that day that the Lord uh, saith the Lord that the heart of the king shall perish and the heart of the princes and the priests shall be astonished and the prophets shall wonder notice it's the prophets again Peter's speaking about these false prophets that will come and just as it was in Jeremiah's day there were false prophets leading the people astray deceiving them and God says I'm still Jesus I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring judgment and I will deal with these people it's very similar to what we read in Revelation 6, that the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the chief captains, the mighty men, every bondman, every free man hid themselves in the desert. Everybody, by the way, everybody's uncovered in that, that bracket, apart from the believers who have taken before this point. Uh, hide themselves in the dens of the rock and the mountains and say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? Jeremiah 4.10 Then said I, O Lord God, surely thou hast greatly deceived this people. And Jerusalem saying, you shall have peace, whereas the sword reaches unto the soul. Jeremiah saying, but Lord, aren't you deceiving the people? Well, you have similar things in the New Testament, because in 2 Thessalonians 2, we read, And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, and they all, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Romans one twenty eight says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. So just as it was in Jeremiah's day, God allowed this deception to perpetuate and to build and to grow, particularly in Jerusalem, but throughout the nation. And it will be the same in you know, the days ahead of us. Jeremiah 5, it says, They have uh, uh, belied the Lord. And said, it is not he, neither shall evil come upon us. Notice they didn't believe these things would happen. Neither shall we see sword nor famine. And the prophets shall become wind. And the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done unto them. Again, these prophets, these people that were speaking of what was going to happen, they, they completely denied that God would ever bring judgment upon Jerusalem. There are many in the church today that will tell you that, that God won't be coming back in force to bring judgment upon this world and all sorts of um, heretical doctrines that are being propagated. In Jeremiah 6.10, it says, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised and they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. So the leaders of the nation, the prophets and the priests, they didn't hold any regard to God's word. They rejected God's word completely. A minister some years ago said to me, uh, after talking to him about some biblical uh, issues, the trouble with you is that you put too much trust in that book. Now, I took that as a compliment, but it was sad that a minister of a church could make a statement like that, that I trust the Bible. Uh, and he found that for some reason odd. <clears throat> For the least of them, even to the greatest of them, uh, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet even uh, unto the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Now, this is sad because we live at a time where many in the church are saying that peace will come, that the church will somehow rise up and we will convert the world. It's a dominion theology or kingdom now theology. You may have heard those titles as expressions and they all claim that peace is coming. That's not what the Bible says. It was just the same in Jeremiah's day. Notice this also. This is in Jeremiah 6.15. Were they ashamed when they'd committed abomination? 
Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore, they shall fall among them that fall. At the time that I, will, I visit them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. And again, this uh, peace for the least of them, even to the greatest of them. Everyone is, oh, we read that a moment ago, uh, given to covetousness, the whole peace, peace thing. First uh, Thessalonians 5, 3 says, For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Jeremiah 6.16, God said, I also set the watchman over you, saying, Hearken to the sound of the trumpet. Get ready, listen to that blowing of the trumpet. But they said, we will not hearken. Many in the church today will completely deny the uh, reality of the rapture. They say, you know, it won't happen. It's not what the Bible... Well, they, they don't even read the Bible. They don't study the Bible. They don't look at the Bible. They just don't accept. They just reject. Just in Jeremiah's day, they're rejected. They can't hear um interestingly in one of the top selling books uh of the last uh, 30 40 years uh, the purpose driven life by rick warren he made this comment when the disciples wanted to talk about prophecy jesus quickly switched the conversation to evangelism he said in essence the details of my return are none of your business now sadly many many christians read that book and they read things like that. And that's not the only quote. Many other people have said similar things. Trying to get our eyes off the return of Jesus. Get our eyes off of prophecy. What did Peter say? Peter says, Prophecy came not in the old time uh, by the will of man, but holy men of God, uh, uh, men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And he says also that we have this more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place. No, what Rick Warren said is so far removed from what the Bible teaches. And yet so many Christians fall for these kind of ideas. OK, so some lessons for all of this. Well, we are going to be told that judgment is not coming. We're going to have this message of peace being propagated by the church. The sound of the trumpet is not going to happen, is what people will tell us. The rapture, they're going to deny it. You know, the priests will reject the word of God, and we see that all the time. And we also see uh, abominations being approved. Of course, you've all seen the headlines in the news this week about the comments that the Pope has made uh, regarding marriage. That, that marriage, which in God's word is so... Uh, important so part of god's plan and purpose for mankind because of course marriage speaks of christ and the church and now the catholic church openly coming out and undermining the foundation and the basis of marriage from a biblical perspective so in all of these things we see there is in jeremiah's day it's a great study in looking at the deception that will be coming uh, and is coming and is here now uh, for the church so a lot of lessons we can draw and of course we need to be careful that we don't be deceived jeremiah just tried so hard to warn the people now notice this then so there were false prophets also among the people even as there shall be false teachers among you so all those old testament things we've just looked at and there's many others we could we could look into but it gives you a flavor of just as it was it's going to be for us going forward from this point as well and notice who privately shall bring in damnable heresies and even denying the Lord that brought them, denying the basis of the atonement. And it's incredible the number of prominent Christian speakers and teachers that make comments questioning the uh, the atonement. You know, uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago individuals that have uh, come up with this idea, rejecting uh, that God would punish his own son. Uh, and saying that's abhorrent god would never do that well of course if that didn't happen if if the wrath of the father didn't fall upon the son for our sins then nobody paid for them and that means we've got to pay for them and so there is no gospel there is no good news 
Um, so as Peter said, these things will come. Well, they've come, they're here and they're going to increase. But notice the end of that verse that God is going to bring swift destruction upon them. In fact, they're going to bring it upon themselves because they reject the word of God. Paul, in the book of Acts, speaking to the elders at the beach of Miletus, his last visit with them said, Take heed unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And of your own selves, notice, not just from outside, but from your own selves, shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. They do this for their own gain. Watch, uh, therefore, sorry, therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Notice again these damnable heresies they're going to bring in. First uh, Timothy uh, chapter four, Paul says there that the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. That's where the root of these things is. It's coming from Satan himself, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. They've got so used to rejecting God's word that really it doesn't trouble them at all. And again, denying uh, the law that brought them and will, by God's grace, if the Lord tarries and we're not raptured before, we'll move after we finished in Peter, we'll move into a study of John's letters. Uh, and John deals with this about even in his time in the first century, people that were denying that Jesus is the Christ. And notice they're going to bring upon themselves swift destruction. And we're told in verse two that many, uh, it, it, it's a chilling word, many, um, you know, it, it, there's, there's <laughs> We could go into the Greek, we could dig into the Greek a lot, but many just means many, uh, you know, um, and shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Notice that those that speak the truth are going to be accused of hate crimes. That's essentially what this Jim was talking about that a little bit this morning. And that's exactly what's going on. Those that speak the truth as we go forward, we'll be more and more accused of hate speech and so on because we stick to what the Bible says. Because people want to run after their own lust. They want to follow their own ideas. They don't want to have any authority over them. Of course, the Bible is a great source of authority. It's God's word. It's God's standard. And people reject those things. Remember what Jesus said. Matthew 7, Enter you at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be that go in thereat because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads unto life and few there be that find it beware of false prophets which come unto you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ravening walls so we just be so careful of those that look like their prophets they'll say like that other prophet did earlier this morning we were looking in uh, uh, first kings but but i'm one of the prophets i'm one of your brothers we're, we're on the same side you know, can't we all be happy and work together and love each other? You know, well, no, because there's a big difference between those truly who are gods and those who are the false prophets, which scripture warns so much about. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. See, people will use God's name. They do things in the name of the Lord. But he that does the will of my father, which is in heaven, is, the, is what Jesus says, the qualification. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Okay, so don't be surprised to find people prophesying. And maybe even those things will come true, because as we read in Deuteronomy, the Lord may allow that to test you. And in thy name of cast out devils, they're going to have some sort of spiritual power. They may be able to work miracles. 
And as I named, there are many wonderful works. And people are going to go, wow, this must be of God. It's a wonderful thing. I'm going to be very careful. Because Jesus says, and then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Just as it was in Jeremiah's day is reiterated here. Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Jesus also said in Matthew 24, regarding this end time scenario, that many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many there's too many many's in that sentence for me. Verse three, and through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. I mean, we've seen so much of this uh, with the abuses through Christian TV and so many churches, the whole name it and claim it kind of message that was going out you know, over the last 20, 30 years and so on. And people get caught up in this and people end up donating and giving money to these causes and these ministries, so-called you know, with, with these kind of feigned words, they make merchandise out of you. You know, you can buy um, miracle water from the Jordan. Uh, I've been to Israel. I've seen the Jordan. Uh, and the, the water that I've seen in the Jordan is not as clear as the stuff that's in these bottles that they try and sell. You know, or they'll, they'll try and sell you miracle wallets. If you buy a miracle wallet, you'll never need to, to worry about money again. And I think, well, if, if that's the case, why do I need to buy a miracle wallet from you? Why don't you just open your miracle wallet and that will give you all the money you need. You won't need to ask it from other people. Anyway, there you go. Um, and he told, whose judgment now of a long time lingers not and their damnation slumbers not. In other words, God is going to bring judgment on these people. We need not worry. We need not be anxious about these things. Now we get on to a really uh, contentious issue and I'm not going to spend a long time on this. I've put a lot of slides in the the, the uh, packet, which I'm going to leave online because if you want to look at this again, for those that have not studied it in detail, many of us have gone through this a number of times. But this verse just highlights something that Peter's using to say the problem we've got is not only that deception is coming, but this rejection of authority. And this is the example he gives. He says, for if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And then he goes on and we'll look at the rest of it in a second. But this goes all the way back to Genesis. Genesis three, war is declared as God says he will put enmity between thee and the woman. This is Satan and between thy seed and her seed. So between Satan and mankind and mankind's offspring, there's going to be this war. It shall bruise thy head and thou shall bruise his seal. And that sets the, 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 the battle lines, if you like. And then in Genesis six, we're told very clearly that it came to pass that when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that he is also flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. Or in other words, I'm going to give you 120 years. In that 120 years, God called a man called Noah to build an ark to save himself and his family. They were the only ones who were not contaminated with this horrible situation that's been described here, that these angelic beings left their first estate, left their place where they should have been, and they came and they took daughters or human wives and they produced offspring. Now these are they of whom later are referred to as giants. We read in verse 4, there were giants in the earth in those days. Now that's the way it's translated. Um, the, the word actually is Nephilim uh, in the Hebrew uh, in the earth in those days and also after that when the sons of God these are angelic beings that word, term is used four times every time it speaks of a direct creation of God so such as the angels so the angels came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them the same became mighty men which were of old men of renown 
And God saw the wickedness of man uh, was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. A little bit like today, isn't it? And it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air. For repenteth me that I have made them. This problem became so prevalent on the earth that the only solution was that God wiped out every living being on the earth that had been contaminated because of this this uh, infestation effectively of these fallen angelic beings and their offspring, these giants of which there is so much folklore and legend. So the reason for the flood, and so many people do not understand this, was that these angels had left their first estate. They'd taken the women of the earth that they desired, and their offspring were these hybrid beings. It sounds so fanciful, and yet every culture historically has reference to this. And it was believed by the early church. I'll give you some references in a moment. They were part human, part celestial. They were of physical abnormal size. They were referred to as the Nephilim uh, or the fallen ones. That's what the word nef- uh, Nephilim means. It means to fall. They were the fallen ones. Um, it comes from that Hebrew verb, uh, which means uh, from Nephal, to cast down. Uh, the Greek Septuagint actually translates this as uh, uh, giants from Gigas, meaning earthborn. So actually, although they were giants, the actual word really means they were the fallen ones. Uh, they happened to be giants. And as I say, the word we have in English, the word giants, comes from this word gigas. It means earthborn. Um, so you get some of the context. Incidentally, um, uh, genigas is the same word that's used in Greek mythology for titans. We'll mention that in a while. Uh, and they were creatures that emerged from interbreeding of the Greek gods with human beings. Uh, this is in Greek mythology, uh, and gena means breed or kind, and of course it's where we get our word genes or genetics from, it comes from the same roots. So these offspring became a source of much myth and legend and folklore down through the ages, but of course the real purpose was the annihilation of the human race, that's what Satan was after, and only Noah and his family were genetically pure, pure. they kept themselves pure from this um, contamination that was going on. Uh, of course satan almost succeeded in destroying mankind and the question some people asked him was god unjust and unloving to send the flood well no not at all because it was actually an act of love and mercy and sharon was talking about that this morning you know to preserve this uh, special creation that god had created mankind god sent the flood so that mankind could be preserved so that a savior could come and there'd be a, a possibility of redemption of course psalm 119 verse 68 God is good and does good. Now, I'm not going to go through all these, but there are many references in the New Testament that we could look at. Um, there's the, the early church fathers believe what we've just talked about. They had this understanding that exactly what we just said, these angels came down and the problem it caused that led to the flood. Modern scholars, uh, good biblical Bible-based uh, Bible teachers, again, have exactly this uh, understanding and position. This isn't something new. It's not something fanciful. In the book of Jude, it speaks there. We'll get onto this maybe in a, uh, a month or two's time as and when we get there in our study through the New Testament. Uh, but it speaks of the angels which kept, kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. Uh, notice he's reserved in, in judgment um, for the, the judgment of the great day. And notice that we're told that they went after strange flesh. An example there is given of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, a relationship that was not intended by God is really the idea that's being presented. 
the word habitation that's there translated is the Greek word oketerian, and it refers to the body as a dwelling place for the spirits. And what Jude tells us is that the angels who sinned left their natural body, as it were, and they went after strange flesh or indulged in a relationship that God had not intended. The only other place in the New Testament that that word is used is in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 2, and it speaks of our being clothed with a new body when we are regenerated, when we are uh, taken up to be with the Lord and we are given our resurrection bodies. So, Again, notice that it says that there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that. After the flood, this problem persisted, but it was localized to the area that God had said he was going to set up a family. That family was Abraham's family uh, and that through that family would come the savior. And so Satan now targets geographically that region. There's many examples in the Old Testament, I'll just leave this in for the notes, of the uh, attempts of Satan to try and wipe out this line that led to the Messiah being born. As I say, I'll leave it in the notes and you can look at that at your leisure if you want to. So, you know, when we really understand the reason for the battles in the Old Testament, we really don't have any problem reconciling the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New. A lot of people sometimes see a disparity. There is no disparity. Both reveal a God of love and mercy. And that's why the inhabitants of Canaan also had to be destroyed because of this same gene pool problem. And sadly, most Christians are ignorant of this because they do not study or read their Bibles today. Now, I'm not going to go through all of this. I'm going to leave the slides. But there are many, many references in the Old Testament to these giants. And as we said this morning, the children are going through looking at the account, not a story, it's the account of David and Goliath. Goliath was one of the last of the remnant of these giants. Uh, Og, the king of uh, Bashan, uh, had this huge uh, bedstead. Goliath, we just mentioned, came from a family of giants uh, and so on. You know, just the, the details were given uh, are significant. Just look at that for a second. You've got on the bottom left there the height of a normal six foot man. Then you've got the height of Goliath. Think of young David. David probably was nowhere near six foot at the age that he went up against Goliath. And he had this confidence in God that God would give him victory. And you can see also the height there of Og, king of Bashan. Um, this one that is recorded, whose details are given in this account. This isn't just fanciful uh, mythology. This is history in the Bible that's been given to us. You start to understand the real problem and why those uh, um, 12 spies that went into the land to check it out before Joshua went in. Why only two of them came back saying, we trust God. The rest of them were fearful. And you start to get an idea of why. Meaning a whole tribe of people that were this kind of size starts to put it into context, doesn't it? As I said, there's lots of uh, confirmations in history. You go through um, the uh, Greek cultures, the Roman cultures. In uh, Josephus, I will just read this. He said, many angels of God accompanied with women and begat sons that proved unjust. The despisers of all that was good on account of their own strength. These men did what resembled the acts of those whom the Grecians called giants he makes a, it's a historical statement he says there was till then left the race of giants who had bodies so large and countenances so entirely different from other men that they were surprising to the sight and terrible to the hearing the bones of these men are still shown to this day as a historian you can't write a sentence like that unless you have the evidence to back up your statement these are historical claims 
uh, in a book, The Giant Cities of Bashan and Serious Holy Places, uh, written by the Reverend L.J. Porter, he said this, uh, of these locations in northern Israel, a place called Bashan that he uncovered. I have no doubt the occupants of Bashan's cities were very large people because all the doorways were wide and high. However, I could not tell how high the rooms were because there was always a few feet of debris on the floor and entrances, I would guess, 12 feet high on average. And this is, again, excavation. This is only going back to 1877, uncovering evidence of all of these things. And we could talk about the things that have been built, the ancient monuments going back in the past, many of these things all suggest uh, some beings of abnormal size, stature and, and uh, strength. Again, lots of things around the world. I'll leave these in for the notes if you want to look at them in detail and so on the greek titans just interestingly enough the these uh in mythology they were partly terrestrial partly celestial exactly the same picture that the bible paints but of course this is just the the greek mythology um but the uh, the titans apparently rebelled against their father uranus and after a prolonged contest they were defeated by zeus and condemned to tartarus now why is that interesting well the word in in in, um, uh, greek for titan uh, is translated in the Chaldean as Shitan, which in the Hebrew is Satan. Just an interesting connection. But that Titan, sorry, that word Tartarus, where this place they were condemned, is the same word that Peter uses in these verses. If God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus. So the Greeks have drawn on these ideas that are rooted in the Bible, and their mythology comes from these things. So many cultures have this idea of these gods or god men coming down from heaven and having relationships with the women of the earth and so on. Uh, Jesus interestingly said, but as the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Uh, an interesting study to do on that verse. But again, God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, delivered them, chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah. The eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that afterwards should live ungodly. You see, God has given warning to people throughout history. And this warning of rejecting authority, particularly, this is the real message that Peter's giving here. He uses this example of the giant, of the uh, angelic beings, because they rejected the authority of God and they rebelled against God. And he uses that almost as the, um, 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 kind of trailer for, for the, the, the big picture here that people have rejected God's authority. And we see more and more of this going on. And he used the example of Lot, of course, and what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, and delivered just Lot. Interesting, in the Old Testament, you don't always get the impression that Lot is righteous. But we're told this. Uh, he was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. It makes you wonder why he stayed there so long. But nevertheless, for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Again, speaks of some of the days we're living in. And the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Don't let this be a a negative, a, a kind of a woeful message, because there's a message of hope here that the world is going to be punished. It is going to be judged. The things that we have seen in the past are being repeated from the the false prophets and so on. The the deception that's coming into the world and a lot of it's coming through the church. 
we see also this complete rejection of authority and next week lord willing we're going to build on that we'll look at what peter says about these individuals that reject authority now he's given this example of these fallen angels which is why i've gone into it in a bit more detail but the real message that Peter's saying is there are people that are rejecting authority in general, but most importantly, they're rejecting God's authority here and they will be punished. But God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. And that word really, not temptations as you and I tend to think, but it's really meaning trials. God knows how to deliver us out of the trials, out of all the challenges that lay await for us uh, with this world that we are in and the challenges we see around us. God can deliver us out of these things. Okay, next week we're going to pick it up. We're going to read from uh, verse 9 through to 20, Lord willing. So study ahead. Uh, by all means, do your own study ahead of these things and uh, just be blessed as you do so. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning, Lord, for this opportunity to review, to study these things. Lord, we ask you, just give us a peace in our hearts. Lord, not to be anxious, not to be worried. Lord, not to fear. Lord, you've you're not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. Lord, the lessons that we're taught here are, Lord, there to give us examples, to warn us of what is coming, that we also would not be caught up in these deceptions that are surrounding us. Lord, help us to be a discerning people. Help us also, Lord, not to fear what man says. Lord, not to fear what this world says. And when they speak against us for being righteous and being godly, Lord, we don't need to be afraid afraid of those things, Lord, because we serve the living God who is able to deliver the godly. We just thank you for these things now in Jesus name. Amen.